Book Eight, Chapter Eight of Ben Hur. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Ben Hur, A Tale of the Christ, by Lew Wallace. Book Eight, Chapter Eight. The streets were full of people going and coming, or grouped about the fires roasting meat, and feasting, and singing, and happy. The odour of scorching flesh, mixed with the odour of cedar-wood aflame, and smoking loaded the air. And as this was the occasion when every son of Israel was full brother to every other son of Israel, and hospitality was without bounds, Ben-Hur was saluted at every step, while the groups by the fires insisted, Stay and partake with us. We are brethren in the love of the Lord. But with thanks to them he hurried on, intending to take horse at the Khan, and return to the tents on the Cedron. To make the place it was necessary for him to cross the thoroughfare, so soon to receive sorrowful Christian perpetuation. There also the pious celebration was at its height. Looking up the street he noticed the flames of torches in motion streaming out like pennons. Then he observed that the singing ceased where the torches came. His wonder rose to its highest, however, when he became certain that amidst the smoke and dancing sparks he saw the keener sparkling of burnished spear-tips, arguing the presence of Roman soldiers. What were they, the scoffing legionaries, doing in a Jewish religious procession? The circumstance was unheard of, and he stayed to see the meaning of it. The moon was shining its best. Yet, as if the moon and the torches, and the fires in the streets, and the rays streaming from windows and open doors were not enough to make the way clear, some of the processionists carried lighted lanterns, and fancying he discovered a special purpose in the use of such equipments, Ben-Hur stepped into the street so close to the line of march as to bring every one of the company under view while passing. The torches and the lanterns were being borne by servants, each of whom was armed with a bludgeon or a sharpened stave. Their present duty seemed to be to pick out the smoothest paths among the rocks in the street for certain dignitaries among them, elders and priests, rabbis with long beards, heavy brows, and beaked noses, men of the class potential in the councils of Caiaphas and Hannas. Where could they be going? Not to the temple, certainly, for the route to the sacred house from Zion, whence these appeared to be coming, was by the Zistus. And their business, if peaceful, why the soldiers? As the procession began to go by Ben-Hur, his attention was particularly called to three persons walking together. They were well towards the front, and the servants who went before them with lanterns appeared unusually careful in the service. In the person moving on the left of this group, he recognized a chief policeman of the temple. The one on the right was a priest. The middle man was not at first so easily placed, as he walked leaning heavily upon the arms of the others, and carried his head so low upon his breast as to hide his face. His appearance was that of a prisoner not yet recovered from the fright of arrest, or being taken to something dreadful, to torture or death the dignitaries helping him on the right and left, and the attention they gave him, made it clear that if he were not himself the object moving the party, he was at least in some way connected with the object, 
a witness or a guide, possibly an informer. So if it could be found who he was, the business at hand might be shrewdly guessed. With great assurance Ben-Hur fell in on the right of the priest and walked along with him. Now if the man would lift his head. And presently he did so, letting the light of the lanterns strike full in his face, pale, dazed, pinched with dread, the beard roughed, the eyes filmy, sunken, and despairing. In much going about following the Nazarene, Ben-Hur had come to know his disciples as well as the Master, and now, at the sight of the dismal countenance, he cried out, "'The Iscariot!' Slowly the head of the man turned until his eyes settled upon Ben-Hur, and his lips moved as if he were about to speak. But the priest interfered. "'Who art thou? Begone!' he said to Ben-Hur, pushing him away. The young man took the push good-naturedly, and, waiting an opportunity, fell into the procession again. Thus he was carried passively along down the street, through the crowded lowlands between the hill Bezetha and the castle of Antonia, and on by the Bethesda Reservoir to the Sheep Gate. There were people everywhere, and everywhere the people were engaged in sacred observances. It being Passover night, the valves of the gate stood open. The keepers were off somewhere feasting. In front of the procession, as it passed out unchallenged, was the deep gorge of the Cedron, with the Olivet behind, its dressing of cedar and olive-trees darker of the moonlight, silvering all the heavens. Two roads met and merged into the street at the gate, one from the northeast, the other from Bethany. Ere Ben-Hur could finish wondering whether he were to go farther, and if so, which road was to be taken, he was led off down into the gorge, and still no hint of the purpose of the midnight march. Down the gorge, and over the bridge at the bottom of it, there was a great clatter on the floor as the crowd, now a straggling rabble, passed over beating and pounding with their clubs and staves. A little farther, and they turned off to the left in the direction of an olive orchard enclosed by a stone wall in view from the road. Ben-Hur knew there was nothing in the place but old gnarled trees, the grass, and a trough hewn out of a rock for the treading of oil after the fashion of the country. While, yet more wonderstruck, he was thinking what could bring such a company at such an hour to a quarter so lonesome, they were all brought to a standstill. Voices called out excitedly in front. A chill sensation ran from man to man. There was a rapid falling back, and a blind stumbling over each other. The soldiers alone kept their order. It took Ben-Hur but a moment to disengage himself from the mob and run forward. There he found a gateway without a gate, admitting to the orchard, and he halted to take in the scene. A man in white clothes, and bareheaded, was standing outside the entrance, his hands crossed before him, a slender, stooping figure, with long hair and thin face, in an attitude of resignation and waiting. It was the Nazarene. Behind him, next the gateway, were the disciples in a group. They were excited, but no man was ever calmer than he. The torchlight beat redly upon him, giving his hair a tint ruddier than was natural to it. Yet the expression of the countenance was, as usual, all gentleness and pity. Opposite this most unmartial figure stood the rabble, 
gaping, silent, awed, cowering, ready at a sign of anger from him to break and run, and from him to them, then at Judas, conspicuous in their midst, Ben-Hur looked, one quick glance, and the object of the visit lay open to his understanding. Here was the betrayer, there the betrayed, and these with clubs and staves, and the legionaries, were brought to take him. A man may not always tell what he will do until the trial is upon him. This was the emergency for which Ben-Hur had been for years preparing. The man to whose security he had devoted himself, and upon whose life he had been building so largely, was in personal peril. Yet he stood still. Such contradictions are there in human nature. To say truth, O oh reader, he was not entirely recovered from the picture of the Christ before the gate beautiful, as it had been given by the Egyptian. And besides that, the very calmness with which the mysterious person confronted the mob held him in restraint by suggesting the possession of a power in reserve more than sufficient for the peril. Peace and goodwill, and love and non-resistance, had been the burden of the Nazarene's teaching. Would he put his preaching into practice? He was master of life. He could restore it when lost. He could take it at pleasure. What use would he make of the power now? Defend himself? And how? A word, a breath, a thought was sufficient, that there would be some signal exhibition of astonishing force beyond the natural Ben-Hur believed, and in that faith waited. And in all this he was still measuring the Nazarene by himself, by the human standard. Presently the clear voice of the Christ arose. "'Whom seek ye?' "'Jesus of Nazareth,' the priest replied. "'I am he.' At these simplest of words, spoken without passion or alarm, the assailants fell back several steps, the timid among them cowering to the ground, and they might have let him alone and gone away had not Judas walked over to him. "'Hail, master!' With this friendly speech he kissed him. "'Judas!' said the Nazarene, mildly. "'Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Wherefore art thou come?' Receiving no reply, the master spoke to the crowd again. "'Whom seek ye?' "'Jesus of Nazareth.' "'I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way.' At these words of entreaty the rabbis advanced upon him and, seeing their intent, some of the disciples for whom he interceded drew nearer. One of them cut off a man's ear, but without saving the master from being taken. And yet Ben-Hur stood still. Nay, while the officers were making ready with their ropes, the Nazarene was doing his greatest charity, not the greatest indeed, but the very greatest in illustration of his forbearance, so far surpassing that of men. "'Suffer ye thus far,' he said to the wounded man, and healed him with a touch. Both friends and enemies were confounded, one side that he could do such a thing, the other that he would do it under the circumstances. "'Surely, surely he will not allow them to bind him,' thus thought Ben-Hur. "'Put up thy sword into the sheath, 
the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? From the offending follower the Nazarene turned to his captors. Are you come out, as against a thief, with swords and staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple, and you took me not. But this is your hour, and the power of darkness. The posse plucked up courage and closed about him, and when Ben-Hur looked for the faithful they were gone. Not one of them remained. The crowd about the deserted man seemed very busy with tongue, hand, and foot. Over their heads, between the torch-sticks, through the smoke, sometimes in openings between the restless men, Ben-Hur caught momentary glimpses of the prisoner. Never had anything struck him as so piteous, so unfriended, so forsaken. Yet, he thought, the man could have defended himself, he could have slain his enemies with a breath, but he would not. What was the cup his father had given him to drink? And who was the father to be so obeyed? Mystery upon mystery, not one but many. Directly the mob started in return to the city, the soldiers in the lead. Ben-Hur became anxious. He was not satisfied with himself. Where the torches were in the midst of the rabble, he knew the Nazarene was to be found. Suddenly he resolved to see him again. He would ask him one question. Taking off his long outer garment and the handkerchief from his head, he threw them upon the orchard wall, and started after the posse, which he boldly joined. Through the stragglers he made way, and by littles, at length reached the man who carried the ends of the rope with which the prisoner was bound. The Nazarene was walking slowly, his head down, his hands bound behind him. The hair fell thickly over his face, and he stooped more than usual. Apparently he was oblivious to all going on around him. In advance a few steps were priests and elders talking and occasionally looking back. When, at length, they were all near the bridge and the gorge, Ben-Hur took the rope from the servant who had it, and stepped past him. "'Master, master,' he said, hurriedly, speaking close to the Nazarene's ear, "'dost thou hear me, master? A word, one word, tell me—' The fellow from whom he had taken the rope now claimed it. "'Tell me,' Ben-Hur continued, "'goest thou with these of thine own accord?' The people were come up now, and in his own ears asking angrily, "'Who art thou, man?' "'Oh, master,' Ben-Hur made haste to say, his voice sharp with anxiety, "'I am thy friend and lover. Tell me, I pray thee, if I bring rescue, wilt thou accept it?' The Nazarene never so much as looked up, or allowed the slightest sign of recognition. Yet the something— which when we are suffering is always telling it to such as look at us, though they be strangers, fail not now. Let him alone, it seemed to say. He has been abandoned by his friends. The world has denied him. In bitterness of spirit he has taken farewell of men. He is going he knows not where, and he cares not. Let him alone. And to that Ben-Hur was now driven. A dozen hands were upon him, and from all sides there was shouting, "'He is one of them! Bring him along! Club him! Kill him!' With a gust of passion which gave him many times his ordinary force, Ben-Hur raised himself, turned about with arms outstretched, 
shook the hands off, and rushed through the circle which was fast hemming him in. The hands snatching at him as he passed tore his garments from his back, so he ran off the road naked, and the gorge, in keeping of the friendly darkness, darker there than elsewhere, received him safe. Reclaiming his handkerchief and outer garments from the orchard wall, he followed back to the city gate. Thence he went to the Khan, and on the good horse rode to the tents of his people, out by the tombs of the kings. As he rode, he promised himself to see the Nazarene on the morrow. Promised it, not knowing that the unfriended man was taken straightway to the house of Hannas to be tried that night. The heart the young man carried to his couch beat so heavily he could not sleep, for now clearly his renewed Judean kingdom resolved itself into what it was. Only a dream. It is bad enough to see our castles overthrown one after another, with an interval between in which to recover from the shock, or at least let the echoes of the fall die away. But when they go all together, go as ships sink, as houses tumble in earthquakes, the spirits which endure it calmly are made of stuffs sterner than common, and Ben-Hur's was not of them. Through vistas in the future he began to catch glimpses of a life serenely beautiful, with a home instead of a palace of state, and Esther its mistress. Again and again through the leaden-footed hours of the night he saw the villa by Mycenaeum, and with his little countrywoman strolled through the garden and rested in the panelled atrium. Overhead the Neapolitan sky, at their feet the sunniest of sunlands and the bluest of bays. In plainest speech he was entering upon a crisis with which to-morrow and the Nazarene will have everything to do. End of chapter.